Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Mark Grimaldi, Leslie's executive producer, filling in for Leslie today and tomorrow. And I'm excited to be joined uh, once again by Roan Carey, the managing editor at The Nation. You probably remember Roan. Uh, he actually was on the show last on October 6th when I interest, uh, excuse me, interviewed him on this very same topic uh, regarding Syria. We talked about an article that he wrote for The Nation called How to End the Civil War in Syria. I definitely would recommend you checking it out during the break. In the meantime, we're going to actually be talking about what has kind of changed since then and most recently what's been going on since Friday. A lot of action actually uh, in the region besides, you, uh, you know, unfortunately the usual killing that's been going on between the many different interests there. Um, the latest uh, on Friday, we saw the United States announcing that they're going to be sending special forces to Syria. And there's a truce being sought after the peace talks on Friday. So again, as I mentioned, to talk about that more, we're going to bring on Roan Carey. Roan, welcome to the show, and uh, thanks for coming on again. It's good to be on, Mark. So, Roan, when looking at the news regarding the peace talks on Friday, my understanding that the the hopeful development was that Iran uh, was at the table. Not necessarily a lot was agreed upon, but the fact that they were brought to the table was significant compared to past peace talks. But before you and I get into the nitty-gritty of it, uh, I always like to kind of just give people a quick, not that you can do that with Syria, but give them a, a bit, uh, a lay of the groundwork as to all the, the different interests that are going on there. Because I think for many Americans, even those of us who try to stay up on the news, it's an intimidating subject because we know there's so much heartache and fighting and violence going on there, and we feel like we want to do something about it. But it's very intimidating to even understand the many interests there because not that Americans can't understand complex, you know, foreign situations. We tend to find ourselves in those a lot as Americans um, due to our government's involvement in these situations, good and bad in the past. But when that happens, usually there tends to seem like a clear target, essentially, whereas this couldn't be the, the furthest thing from there, where really... You know, my understanding and the way I explain it to those who ask me about it is, you know, essentially you have Bashar al-Assad, the dictator of Syria, essentially, who started committing genocide against his people. And what has sprung up over time, the rebels who fight him have many different interests themselves. Some are as radical as ISIS. Others are considered, quote unquote, moderate rebels, which the United States has tried to help. And then you have all of these other interests in the Middle East who are getting involved in kind of a proxy war like Iran and Russia on the side of Assad. And then you have the United States and Saudi Arabia and other Western allies on the side of the moderate rebels. Is that kind of a, a decent summary? Well, it's true that it's fiendishly complicated, even for people deeply immersed in it. Yeah, I mean, your basic point that it's become a regional proxy war is true. Uh, what began as peaceful protests in the spring of 2011 against uh, Bashar al-Assad's dictatorship was met with vicious, brutal repression, and that turned into an armed rebellion. The armed rebellion itself has split into many, many different factions. Uh, it's very localized. It's very factionalized. Those that uh, most Americans would think of as moderate have been uh, steadily excluded from having any major presence in the rebel forces. They still exist in spots, but they honestly don't have very much power or sway. Overwhelmingly, the rebel forces are 
different gradations of Islamist, um, and many of the most powerful ones are what we would consider to be pretty extreme Islamists, including Al-Qaeda. Uh, Al-Qaeda's group is called the Nusra Front, as many people know, but there are other groups that are more or less have that same ideology or something very similar to it who ally with Nusra uh, from time to time. So there's a lot of factionalism among the rebels. As you said, those rebels are supported by regional allies, primarily Saudi Arabia and the Gulf monarchies, who are uh, adhere to a very strict Sunni uh, Wahhabist ideology. And their big battle really is not so much against Assad. Yes, they hate Assad and want Assad to be overthrown, but their big regional enemy about whom they are very paranoid is Iran. They're conducting a proxy war against Iran, Iran itself, uh, along with Hezbollah. The major force in Lebanon is supporting the Assad regime. So that's how it's become so complicated, so destructive, so bloody, is that all of these regional powers are using Syria and the Syrian people to fight their battles with each other. And it's become even more complicated since the Russians got directly involved militarily. And uh, as we're here today talking, now the Americans have, the American government has decided to very gradually step up its involvement, although I would argue it's done uh, to no real coherent purpose. Um, there's not much, it's, it's very hard to figure out what the Obama administration hopes to accomplish by sending these few dozen special forces to help um, what are mostly the Syrian Kurdish resistance groups in the far northeastern part of the country. It's a very strange thing. You know, the Ron, I'm going to stop you right there. I'm just going to jump okay. in because we got a hard break coming, but I want okay. to have you hold your thought, and we're going to have you analyze a little bit more of what's going on with that motivation for the Obama administration. After this break, give us a call, 8886-LESLIE. Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Mark Grimaldi, Leslie's executive producer, filling in for her today and tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern each day. Leslie will be back on Wednesday. In the meantime, I'm currently joined by Roan Carey, who's the managing editor at The Nation. We've been talking about the situation in Syria, not only kind of recapping how we got here, but also discussing what's currently going on and what we're hoping can happen in the future. Roan, before the break, you were starting to talk about the United States uh, response uh, most recently and kind of what the motivations might be and if there's been any coherent approach. So I wanted you to be able to finish where you left off. Yeah, I was <clears throat> I was just saying that uh, it, it's hard to figure out what exactly the Obama administration expects to accomplish by sending a few dozen special forces groups to Syria to help in the battle against ISIS. Um, the war against ISIS is one part of a much larger war, and uh, from the beginning, it's been a kind of an incoherent policy, and it also ha raises extremely serious constitutional issues. Listeners may remember that two years ago, when chemical weapons were introduced by the Assad regime, the Obama administration uh, said or made moves to get directly involved with airstrikes, but Obama, I think correctly and shrewdly, and for the right reasons, went to Congress to make sure that Congress approved the decision, and he didn't get that approval. And I think that approach is appropriate for anything having to do with this war in terms of getting involved militarily, because it's extremely complicated. Uh, 
Congress needs to discuss this, needs to debate it, needs to really decide what are our interests, what should we be doing, what are the, the reasonable outcomes that we can expect to accomplish given what we're willing to commit. If we're actually going to start bombing people, if we're going to support forces fighting, we need to know who we're bombing, why we're doing it, what it's going to accomplish. If we're going to support forces fighting, we need to know who they are and whether we should really be supporting them or not. Our history, our very recent history, is littered with examples of us getting involved militarily in the Middle East and causing way more damage uh, than we ever intended. We destroyed Iraq. Uh, that helped to create ISIS. We got involved in Libya and bombed Libya and uh, helped to overthrow the Gaddafi regime, and that created more chaos. So we should all just be very, very careful about thinking that military intervention is is going to lead to any kind of a solution that would be satisfactory. All indications are is that it's going to make things worse. So going on to the, you know, other side of the coin which would be trying to find a diplomatic solution, which, you know, I agree with especially after reading more and more about the situation, like you said, even if we decided to commit more you know, military might. There's so many different interests in the region. It would be very easy to not only get bogged down in the region, but also potentially make things worse. So I think, you know, let's say we all agree on that for the moment so we can talk about the diplomatic end of things. In the last meeting on Friday, you know, Iran showed up to the table essentially, but, you know, they and Saudi Arabia obviously have some very big differences that came out, you know, after those talks, and now um, Iran is threatening to pull out of the peace talks because of what Saudi Arabia has said. So talk a little bit more about the other end of the spectrum, which is the diplomatic process, where it's been, and, you know, where do you think it's going and where do you hope it will go? Well, it's true that the diplomatic process has been mostly stalled for the last four years. There's no doubt about it. And getting to a diplomatic solution is going to be incredibly hard. And there's no way that it's going to happen in the next few weeks or even probably the next few months. But the important thing is to at least get to a point where all of the significant parties involved in the conflict are actually participating in the talks. And as far as that goes, there really was an important recent advance when the U.S. and its allies stopped blockading Iran's participation. Iran is a party to the conflict, whether you like Iran or not. They're a party to the conflict. And as all previous conflicts in their resolution teach us, um, if you don't involve all the key parties to a conflict in negotiations to a solution, then they're going to be a spoiler. They can spoil it and destroy any solution that you come to. So they have to be involved. America has to be involved. Russia has to be involved. Turkey has to be involved. Saudi Arabia has to be involved. Iran and Hezbollah, all of these parties have to be involved. Yeah, they're going to fight with each other and jockey, and it's going to be frustrating. But the fact that Iran is participating is an important advance, and uh, we need to build on that. And one way to build on that is to search for incremental gains that can lead to something bigger. For example, local ceasefires. It's entirely reasonable and very possible that the regime and opposition forces can agree to local ceasefires in certain areas, and outside players can push that, facilitate it, try to expand those ceasefires to a wider region. I'm going back to Iran and Saudi Arabia. Sure, they're going to yell at each other. They're going to say nasty things. Um, they may threaten to walk out of the talks because of their dislike for each other, but that's when the job of the United States and Russia becomes really important. The superpowers need to lean on those local powers to stay involved, to stop 
uh, using the media to attack each other and to get down to concrete, practical ways to end the fighting and end the conflict. Because in the long run, it threatens the stability of Saudi Arabia and Iran if this conflict continues. So uh, going on to that point, one of the sticking points seems to be what to do with Assad, essentially. Um, right. Iran said it would back you know, a six-month political transition period in Syria, followed by elections to decide whether or not Assad would stay or go, although its foes basically rejected the proposal as a trick to keep Assad in power. So what do you see as a potential solution to that problem, and do you think it's a fair point that it, it just is a trick to keep Assad in power? Well, it's, it's certainly true that Iran and Russia, their baseline position is they would like to keep Assad in power, but... That's not an absolute position. It's certainly not an absolute position from the standpoint of the Russians. They have been saying for years that their main goal, their, their deepest interest, is not so much Assad the person, but that the regime itself is not entirely destroyed and swept away uh, like what happened in Iraq when the U.S. invaded or in Libya after the fall of Gaddafi. They're afraid of that and they're opposed to it because they're afraid that what would ensue would not be a replacement government, but continued and chaotic civil war that would be even worse. And I have to say, on that score, Russia is probably right. Um, if you just completely sweep away the regime, you're going to have even worse civil war. In fact, it might be like what happened in Afghanistan after the Soviet-backed regime was overthrown after the Russians left. The civil war that ensued was actually worse and more damaging and more horrifying, Afghans say, than the war of resistance against the Soviet occupation. So we have to be really careful about um, how we talk about regime change. On the other hand, Assad and his government are responsible for the overwhelming majority of the killing. Their barrel bombs have been horrific war crimes, um, especially here in the West. We need to remember there's a lot of talk about ISIS and the horrors that ISIS inflicts, which ISIS is very proud of, and they don't hide. In fact, they boast about it. But the fact is, Assad regime carries out its war crimes the old-fashioned way. That is, it carries them out on a mass basis, but it denies them all. Uh, so the so Assad is absolutely a war criminal, and sooner or later his, his, he's going to have to go. But that doesn't mean that uh, that has to be the start. You know, insisting on his removal, which is what the U.S. and the Saudis and their side have been insisting on for four years, is just a dead end in terms of diplomacy. So there has to be a very creative way for the different sides to work out some kind of staged transition where Assad's departure is not immediate, it's somewhere down the road, but somehow assured that it would happen, the safety of Assad and his family would have to be guaranteed, there would have to be some sort of um, structures set up to make sure that those parts of the regime that are not completely uh, guilty of war crimes would be able to continue as an administrative apparatus. So all of these things are very difficult. The parameters and the details are going to have to be hashed out, and it's probably going to take many, many months, um, probably, probably uh, several years. But I think what's happening now is the sides really are slowly realizing that no side is actually going to win this war. Assad is not going to reconquer the entire country again. It's just not going to happen. He doesn't have enough troops. The rebels, on the other hand, there's no way they're going to, complete, they're, they're going to overthrow the regime. Uh, the Russians and the Iranians are too committed to preventing a collapse of the government for that to happen. So that means the stage is now set for a diplomatic solution. It's going to be 
difficult to get to, and it's going to take a long time, just as it took in the Lebanese Civil War 25 years ago. But that is really the only solution. What do Russia and Iran say about the war crimes that Assad has committed? Do they deny them as strongly as Assad does himself? I mean, what, do they or are they somewhere in the middle? They mostly just deny them, just just baldly and you know without any embarrassment. You know, they say that there are accusations that can't be proved. They say it's mostly rebels. Um, you know, look, it's not serious. The, the human rights organizations and those who uh, closely observe this conflict, it, there's just overwhelming evidence that the Assad regime has carried out massive atrocities. The majority of people killed, there's now something like a minimum of 250,000 dead, probably over 300,000 killed. Most human rights and third-party observers acknowledge or uh, insist that it well over half and probably more like 80 to 90 percent of those killed have been done by the regime. Absolutely, it is true. Rebel forces have committed horrendous atrocities, too. You know, no one, there's no side here that is uh, innocent of, you know, war crimes. They've been committed on all sides. And the refugee crisis that it's uh, caused with about 10 million people driven from their homes has obviously caused its own problem. And I think that that's one of the the reasons that some of these parties are coming to the table. It's not necessarily because of all the people killed, but all of a sudden, you know, some of these people are, you know, at their doorstep, for lack of a better term, and Jordan can't take any more, obviously. So I think, like you said, that and the realities are setting in of the diplomatic process So that is, an, is a necessity, basically. So let's say, you know, we're at the diplomatic uh, table, we're, we're discussing these things, you know, for people who are, are hoping to find a solution, is there anybody in the United States government or anything you're re- reading that's telling you that the United States is starting to seriously look at this? I know that you mentioned, you know, they're hopefully not talking in absolutes about Assad, although initially that sounds like the right thing to say because what he's done is so outrageous. Once maybe you step back from it emotionally, like you were saying, and really uh, think deeper as to, okay, if I really want to solve this situation, maybe I can't use language that strong, or I can't insist on these terms, or nothing's going to get done. Uh, Does the United States appear that they're starting to go in the right direction beyond that? Because like you said, they're also now talking about bringing special forces in, so it's kind of a little bit of both. It's confusing. Yeah, well, the State Department has indicated that it's that it's willing to entertain the idea of a, you know, I forget exactly what the words they use, but a transition, you know, so that Assad doesn't have to leave immediately. So they are softening their demands. I think that's important, and it's an indication that there's there's a way in which they can agree. The Russians, for their part, as I said earlier, they've indicated that uh, it's not their primary goal is not keeping Assad in power forever, but maintaining some sort of stability, uh, some sort of stable government. So I think that's promising. As far as the refugee crisis goes, um, I think here is where the U.S. government really can do something very concrete, very direct, and very, very helpful, uh, regardless of the complication of the battle. And that's simply to spend more money to give aid to the refugees who are in camps in Jordan and Lebanon and Turkey. It's desperately needed, and the funds pledged for those refugee camps have really fallen off in the last year, and that's part of the reason why so many of them are flooding into Europe through the Greek islands and through the Balkans, because aid has declined. This hasn't been reported as widely as it should have been, but aid from the West 
to those refugee camps has fallen off, and we need to really increase it. That's something the U.S. government could do. It would be a drop in our our uh, our budget. It wouldn't affect uh, our policy, but it would do enormous amount of good to stabilize the situation. You know, f- for that point, and I want to get to two points before we finish up here. Uh, one big thing that people can do is is to pressure the government to do that, pressure their representatives in Congress to talk about this, but also from a personal angle, you know, I've done some research and a, a big organization that helps is obviously the World Food Program, and you mentioned you know, looking at their budget, it's absolutely decimated compared to what needs to happen, and they're just cutting rations for people who are in these camps. So um, I encourage people to go on Twitter, email, call your representatives, try to pressure them in order to increase the budgetary items um, to these organizations and feel free to donate to organizations like the World Food Program. Um, Another story that kind of came up today that I was looking at was uh, talking about the United States and Turkey uh, being on a collision course in Syria, obviously yesterday's elections, keeping uh, their president in power. Um, He does, he does not very, he doesn't look very fondly upon, uh, you know, the Syrian Kurds that are helping us fight ISIS. So it appears that, you know, we're very at odds with uh, Turkey regarding this. Is this something that also would have to just be kind of brought up in these very broad negotiations? Because it's this we're obviously not seeing eye to eye here with Turkey. It's true. It's good you mentioned that because it's a serious conflict and it could get worse. Uh, Turkey's biggest enemy, or I should say the Turkish government's biggest enemy, the government led by Erdogan and the Justice and Development Party, which is a moderate Islamist party, um, it's become an increasingly authoritarian government, and his biggest enemy is the Kurdistan Workers Party or the PKK, the Kurdish guerrillas who have been, who have fought an off and on guerrilla war of resistance against the Turkish government going back to the early 1980s. Their very close allies are the Syrian Kurds who are fighting ISIS, and. Um, the U.S. government has gotten closer and closer to the Syrian Kurdish rebels, which means they are, in effect, very close to the PKK, which is the primary enemy of the Turkish government, who is also a U.S. ally. If that's not crazy and complicated, nothing is. I mean, it's a recipe for disaster. I was going to say, I don't even know how you got that sentence out, Ron. That was very <laughs> impressive. The government is carrying out airstrikes against forces that the U.S. is now on the ground aiding. You know, it's completely crazy. It's incredibly dangerous. Not only do U.S. and Russian warplanes are very close to each other and the danger of an accident is is high, but also uh, the Turkish government is opposing militarily a force that the U.S. has becoming increasingly close to. So that's uh, a very dangerous situation, and the U.S. and Turkey need to work this out and resolve it. Um, the War against the uh, PKK by the Erdogan government is a cynical move to basically um, shut down the domestic opposition to his government, which has really been growing in the last two years. And it's attracted a broad community of leftists, liberals, feminists, Kurds, most of it overwhelmingly peaceful. They want a huge uh, victory or a provisional victory in the June elections, and that's why um, the government they weren't able to form a new government. The Erdogan regime stalled. They called new elections, so they just won through that gambit what they were hoping for, which is a majority government that wouldn't have to compromise with the uh, moderate opposition. But what it's going to do, unfortunately, is increase the tendency on the part of the Turkish government to 
escalate their war against the PKK. And what that means is an increase in the possibility of Turkish military conflict with the U.S. military. Well, Roan, I want to thank you. I think if nothing else, that just gives us another reason to seek a diplomatic solution in this uh, conflict versus a military solution. Um, if you want to find more of Roan's work, which uh, I did and I really enjoyed, you can go to thenation.com. Uh, and the piece that I was referring to uh, is called How to End the Civil War in Syria, which was written by Roan Carey of The Nation. 